I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Vinny Sikor. Vinny joined the Net Diligence team in 2017 as their chief technology officer. Prior to joining Net Diligence, Vinny served as Verizon's HIPAA security officer. His previous experience includes stints as chief technology officer for two healthcare technology companies. Vinny is a featured speaker nationally and internationally on the topics of cyber risk, mobile technology, and information security. Vinny has been quoted in numerous publications, including CISO Online, The Wall Street Journal, and Information Security Magazine. He serves on a number of nonprofit boards and also teaches cybersecurity courses at Messiah College. In this episode, we discuss the differences between privacy and security, talking to the board about cybersecurity, preparing for the cyber tsunami, government regulation, threat intel, aggregating insurance data, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. So, Vinny, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Doug. Well, it's great to be here back again in Philadelphia. Last year, I did a podcast recording with uh, Mark, and glad to have you on this year. But if you could just tell kind of listeners a little bit about where we are and kind of your role in getting uh, the Net Diligence Conference off the ground. (laughs) All the rooms are getting set up. We're getting ready for our big mixer at the end of the end of the day and um, so it's it's a fun day I, it's one of my favorite days of the conference is coming in seeing people uh, that we haven't seen in a while and it, it's always a, a, a good day that's great and so you've now been with Dead diligence for a couple of years but before that you, you've kind of had your uh, past in different types of areas of doing um, HIPAA and types of other type of work kind of how did you get to where you are now from where you were? Sure. I, I was actually uh, attended the very first Net Diligence Conference in Philadelphia way back when, probably 10 years ago or maybe a little longer. Um, and at that point, I was, uh, I'd been in IT. You know, I, right out of college, I went to Penn State University. Right out after college, I got involved with a startup company that was in the medical uh, documentation field was their IT director and just did traditional IT CIO type work for about 10 years. Um, and leading into like the, I'd say around 2005, 2008, that's when things really started to kind of pick up in the cyber risk industry. And and in 2009, I, I was involved with a, a company that uh, was called Immersion. Uh, they did breach response. They were based in State College, Pennsylvania, where, where I lived at the time. And uh, Mark and I reconnected, and, and I spent a lot of time working with carriers, helping, um, you know, helping the company get established in, in breach response. And, and then after that, I spent five years at Verizon, where I was part of the, the cyber risk and strategy team and their HIPAA security officer. So, so traditional IT background, and then moved into data security when it, it seemed to be really be exploding. And, and with that, too, you've certainly seen kind of the convergence of compliance and risk, I guess, 
I think there's at times people try to almost conflate a lot of the issues between security, privacy, and compliance. Like, how do you break it down so people can understand? So, you know, you're at a dinner party and somebody asks, what's the difference? Like, what's the elevator pitch on the differences? Yeah, I mean, it, candidly, it's becoming a little bit easier with all the, the media and the television shows around cybersecurity and, and privacy. So that's helped. But in the early days, when people would ask, what are you doing? And I would explain to them, they had no idea. You know, and they, they imagined that I was sitting in a dark room with a hoodie on and just cranking away on my keyboard. But um, the, way I, the way I describe it, I always bring it back to like the personal, you know, is, which is if you take your phone out and you know, what are your top five apps that you use and what information are you giving out and how many people downstream from that have that information and does it, does it make you worried? And, and usually with individuals, you can highlight just the personal component of there's information on you, your kids, your spouse, that maybe you don't want somebody in a different country or a, a different part of the world or even, even outside of your, your current sphere that has that information. And that's, where, that's how privacy and security comes in. Privacy is what you want. Security is how you get there. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, I guess, you know, myself being a technologist too and coming from a technology background, it's it's cool to do things, but it's not always the right thing to do. And there's a lot of technology companies I've worked with that said, oh, you know, we'll, we'll just gather all the data because we can, and they don't think about the kind of carry cost that goes with that. So yeah. as being a technologist and on the, the privacy side, how do you kind of, how would you coach somebody in doing that to say, look, I know you need data to run your business, but how do you get them to keep only what they need? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, my healthcare background actually helped helped with that because in healthcare, there's this tension between saving a patient's life and also protecting that patient's private information. And so that that dynamic has been there really since 1996 when HIPAA first came out. But it, in in the medical space, it's, that tension's always there: the need for information versus the need for how much do we need. Uh, so to speak. And so I, I, I deal with a lot of developers, and so I always tell them, look, it, there's, you have to balance what you can do with do we need to do it? You know, what's the value? What's the impact? If we create a new feature and, and we can get this information, the question is do we need the information? And, and, what, and look at the worst-case scenario, which is what if something happens and we lose that information, what's the impact to us? And so that's the balance of of wanting to build really cool technology, do really amazing things, but then also, it is all that information necessary? How do you see that dynamic, you know, kind of playing out in the C-suite? So particularly as like a CTO, where you say, oh, I gotta, I gotta build the next cool consumer-facing thing, but also to explain that risk to the business. Like, how do you put risk in terms of technology that the board can understand? Yeah, at, at the board level, it, it's a little bit easier because when you're speaking to a board, you can always talk about financial impact, okay? And you can talk about it in the terms of the financial impact of a new feature or a new technology and saying, okay, if we successfully build this and implement it, this is what the potential revenue stream is. This is the potential impact. Um, you also talk about, you know, candidly branding and social media. Okay, this, this is something that when we bring out, this is what the image of the company will, how it will change. And then you have to balance that with the risk components and say, okay, here's the financial risk and here's how, how you do it. And that's why, you know, cyber risk and cyber insurance is so popular with board members is because it's one of the 
easiest ways that they can mitigate financial risk. Yes, great risk transference. Yep. Uh, I, I see the challenges that we've been, you know, with things like a cyber product in the insurance market is the actuarial data. Yeah. Like, how do you rate that risk? How do you underwrite something? Because, you know, one doctor's office in Illinois might yeah. not be the same as one in New Jersey or New York. So how are you kind of helping underwriters kind of think about that in ways from a technology and risk perspective? Yeah. I think one of the primary ways is just education and thought leadership, is we try to, we try to create a forum where um, everybody can get educated, everybody can get access to the you know, current information. Obviously our claim study is one very helpful one. You know, we've had the privilege of being able to work with a lot of different carriers and gather data. And, and so our report is one of the few reports that's actually based on true financial data. Um, in the past, we've, we've, we've had information on all kinds of things. And when I say we, I mean the industry. You know, you and I have both been in the industry for 20 years and probably in, in this industry since the beginning, you know. And, uh, and everybody in the beginning, in the, around 2004, 2005, in the first five, 10 years, everybody just assumed breaches were going to happen and we would figure it out and, and you know, you never knew. And, and the concept of a billion dollar breach was so far fetched in the beginning, but now it's a, it's a definite reality. And so it's been amazing to see how having true actuarial data has helped people understand the industry. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that is, are the metrics that we're using, are we getting better at them, like the true cost of a data breach per record? What are some of the, you know, maybe newer things that we can be thinking of to really understand the financial impact? Yeah, I think the concept of a per record cost was really something that was, when it came out, it was an easy way and an easy metric to try to explain it to people. But I don't know if that necessarily is a, today, I don't know if we would look at that as, as the way to calculate or forecast the cost of a breach. You know, and, and even the way that you look at risk, because for example, I ran a data analytics company, it was a small data analytics company, there was 12 of us, okay, but we had 108 million records, okay? You know, so think about that. We had basically, at that time, we had a third of the U.S. population's information, and it was because we were aggregators of all of the large health systems' data for analytics purposes, and we were this tiny startup, you know, you know I, I don't want to say working out of my garage, but our office was looked like a garage. I mean, it was, you know, and, and so the, the level of risk that we had was, was tremendous, and there was no metric at that time to really gauge how much risk we have. And with per record, it's kind of the same thing. You can have, you can have a breach where the per record costs are like $4 million per record because there weren't that many, there weren't that many records that were lost, but the impact because brand of, of branding, the size of the corporation, the amount of investigation needed, you know, any type of lawsuits, that, that can, and I don't want to say skew the numbers, but that can have an impact on the numbers. And, and one of the things that I remember from a year ago, a lot of the folks in the insurance industry were saying, you know, how would we handle a cyber tsunami? I mean, that right. was a term that's getting thrown around a lot. Uh, you know, we're, we're a year later from that. Um, is that still the type of risk that the insurance industry is concerned in looking at? I think it is, but I think the risk is less about a cyber tsunami where a large cloud provider gets hit. Um, I think what would drive that tsunami model is actually um, state-sponsored attack and nation 
state warfare. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where the real, like, tsunami-type events can occur in, the, in cyber, is, you know, if there's a major attack on the, the critical infrastructure of the U.S. and what the downstream um, impact would be from there. And so I think that's something that, that people have to consider and, and be cognizant of, which, which for the insurance industry, they've, they've always been able to, to look at those types of things. There's always been a sense of, hey, there's always a possibility that something major like that could happen. So I feel like we might be actually one of the, the most prepared industries because that's, we look at those things. We look at the hurricanes. We look at the, you know, we look at those types of things. And so there's a traditional mindset already in place of, you know, big, bad things can happen. So let's figure out a way to, to manage it. And along those lines too, it's, just, it's maybe not a, you know, massive outage, but we're certainly seeing more things that could occur um, from a state regulatory perspective, you know, yeah. things like CCPA, these types of things where if people have a right to bring lawsuits against individual or individual companies, that could be some pretty heavy losses. How are, I guess, how is the industry kind of preparing for what's on the horizon with that? That's a great question. <laughs> it's a loaded question. I, mean. I want to give you the name of some of my yeah, lawyer yeah. friends that yeah. for you to ask that on a different podcast. Um, so without really having a great answer for you, I think I would just say that uh, it's definitely an area of major concern because if you just look at historically what has happened to industries that have faced similar type actions, um, it's going to be very disruptive. And, um, but it's also going to create a huge opportunity for companies to, to, to dive into the market and, and come up with solutions for problems. Yeah. And, and that also comes down to like some of the things you've certainly seen on the compliance side from HIPAA. And, you know, one of the arguments that I've, I've kind of used over the years with, with different industries is to say, look, you can kind of try to get your own house in order. You can try to figure yeah. it out yourself. PCI credit card industry said, okay, we can either do it ourselves or wait for somebody else and kind of look over their shoulder and say, well, yeah. healthcare got regulated. Um, is, is that a fair analogy, you know, for other industries to say, look, you know, figure out your own compliance standards or the government will do it for you? Yeah, I think, I think the government will do it anyways, mm. you know, um, because I think that's just the nature of government is that cybersecurity is, is such a huge it has so much impact, potential impact, yeah. that you're seeing government involvement in a lot of different ways from, you know, from administrations that, you know, that pushed cloud technology saying that, you know, this is, this is kind of the way that you go to, to other administrations that are saying, okay, here's a framework that we want, you know, we want to put out there. And, and you know, NIST has been providing guidance forever. Um, ICE in Europe and, and you, know, you, know, you know, ISO has been a huge, you know, organization in terms of putting out standards. And, and don't interpret this as a negative thing. I'm not mm -hmm. being negative yeah. at all. I'm actually saying that it's part, it's part of the process. And, but what industry has to do is industry has to move at a pace that's faster than a government entity because, right. because the attacks are moving faster than a standard. And so a standard and a regulation can accommodate and, you know, maybe affect 80% and help with 80% of it, but it's really going to be industry that is going to be the leader in keeping people safe and protecting information and those types of things. A lot of it has to do with like understanding emerging threats, you know, and knowing what's coming out there. I mean, that, and that's a big portion of work that you guys do. You know, 
again, look, looking back from the last couple of years, what are some of the things that you guys are actually seeing in your data that might be interesting or, or things that people might not even be aware of until you see the kind of, you know, yeah. the, the meta-analysis across all of it? Yeah, I, I think threat actor attribution mm. is a really new one. And just in plain English is we're figuring out who the bad guys are on these cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I really think that's a that's a key, and it's a key indicator of how the the market has been maturing. Yeah. And when I say market, I just mean the the community of cybersecurity professionals, yeah. privacy lawyers, and just the whole community, because there is communication happening yeah. at a level that wasn't there ten years ago, and it involves law enforcement. It involves, um, you know forensic firms, it, it involves law firms. Like, a lot of times when I'm curious about something, one of the first groups I call is I call some of my top law firm clients and, and friends. And, yeah. and I say, hey, what are you seeing? Because they, they're handling so many cases that they have great information mm -hmm. and, and it just, it just kind of, it really helps. And to, you know, to, use, uh, to use a kind of a funny analogy, but telecom back in the early days, Whenever there was an incident happening, all the guys at AT&T and all the guys at Verizon knew each other. We all knew each other, and we would call each other and say, hey, are you getting hit with this? What's yeah. going on? Are you seeing this? So that information sharing has always been there, but the way it's exploding now in a good way is awesome to see. Well, I think that, and definitely have seen that too. I mean, there was a big, you know, kind of, I would say that push, but there was always that, that idea in a lot of uh, data breach cases that I've worked or incidents that I worked was, okay, we need, need to figure out what happened, attribution became kind of a less of an important thing. But it does play into understanding the TTPs and IOCs and everything you're going to build about a threat profile. So you can say, hey, are you seeing this too? So you're not reinventing the wheel constantly. Right. So it becomes this this interesting interesting thing. So you're right. That's where I've seen it too. It's like I'll call around a lot of other people and say, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? Right. But I almost feel like that doesn't scale well. So how do you start, you know, yeah. Thinking from a technology perspective, how do we build in information sharing platforms that really allow us to kind of start seeing these things? So, yeah. you know, frequency of lease occurrence starts becoming interesting. Yeah, and if I could, um, so let, I'll just talk about the Veris network, for example, mm -hmm. right? So when Verizon started their data breach investigations report, okay, um, they created an incredible pathway with law enforcement. I mean, it's amazing to see the number of law enforcement groups that are part of Verizon's studies. It started with the Secret Service and it's expanded to Interpol and I think now they have almost 90 different agencies yeah. that are involved. With us, with the net diligence report, same principle, we, you know, because our emphasis was with the insurance companies, um, as, as, the, as the industry began to mature, metrics, we introduced new metrics each year. Right, so we would, as we sit down and we look at things, we'd say, what's missing? Well, you know what's missing? Attribution's missing. So all of a sudden we would start, you would start seeing even on the forums, the claims forums, you know, trying to gather data on attribution. And um, so I think part of it is there's some, I don't want to say committee type work, but like for example, there's an insurance industry cyber crimes task force that just formed last year and they published the report yesterday, I think it went you know, across the wire. That's a great example of pulling people together. And, and once you get people communicating with each other, then it's a matter of implementing technology and a framework so that information can pass quicker. Yeah, and I've also seen that, you know, there's always, not always, but there's, there's been some traditional issues where people are almost kind of scared to say, hey, they've had this issue. Yeah. It's almost like uh, intervention that they need. 
so there is, you know, the human factor still becomes that issue, the psychology of it. So are there better ways that we can enable those people so they can say, hey, I got hit and, and not feel almost shame about it? Or I guess, what, are they also scared of the risk of, of you know, reputational harm or yeah. things? So how do we facilitate that so they can come out? Yeah, I think a big part of it is the anonymization piece of it. You know? Yeah. Is, you know, any of the data that we get and as part of our report, we have no information on who, who the who was hit, and um, you know, and so it's. I think that's a big part of it. I think I think the industry is very comfortable with. Okay, we're we're we are comfortable that this data is solid, and we're comfortable with not knowing names. You know, um, we want to know names of bad guys. We don't necessarily need to know the names of who they hit, and and part of that, Doug, is that people are getting more comfortable with that. See, in the past, if there was a cyber attack on a, on, a, on a company like a retail store, it was devastating to the brand, and it was the retailer that would sometimes get attacked as the, why didn't you, you know, why, what did you do wrong? And we would have to remind people, wait, this was crime. This was yeah. a crime. Somebody came into our client's house, and they robbed the client. Okay? Yeah. The client's not the bad guy. They're the good guys who got, you know, robbed from. And so I think there's that maturity, mm. which just facilitates information sharing. Yeah. Cause it, yeah, yeah the, the victim's already the victim. Just, you know, yeah. so to, and that's, you know, that's a good point. And we've certainly seen that, you know, as, you know, I think almost with inside the industry, we use people as kind of these, I would say scapegoats, but like, you know, the, the whipping folks yeah. of saying, hey, do you want to be another Target? Do you want to be at another Nordstrom? And it's almost too easy to do that, but I think you're right. It's yeah. demonizing them only, only kind of makes it worse. Well, and it, to use a healthcare kind of uh, example, like population health, okay, nobody wanted, no, nobody wanted to admit that they were diabetic, right? But now, because diabetes is all over the place, Everybody contributes to a diabetes stage because everybody wants to be able to solve the problem of diabetes. Okay. Well, one of the things that I learned working with some law enforcement was that that if there's an attack and it, let's just say it's an attack in Idaho and it only amounts to maybe $13,000 a loss or something. But if this group is attacking 50 other, you know, 50 other uh, businesses, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it, it's no longer a case of one, like, one firm in Idaho that was hit for 13,000, if it turns into 75 cases at 13,000 apiece, mm -hmm. law enforcement now has the ability to say, hey, we have a problem here and it's almost like an epidemic. We have to track down yeah. who they are and stop them. And that's happening in cyber. Like, yeah. you know, and the insurance companies are helping in a sense because you can ask a question like, hey, have, you know, how many people do you think got hit last year with, you know, this virus and they can pull up some data and say we had 74 claims and and you know due to that type of attack and that's real information you know i think that there is that cooperation with law enforcement i think sometimes law enforcement and even when we do you know years of doing incident response planning it's like oh when to call in law enforcement this but i've almost seen this trend where they've gotten better at almost like customer service in a certain way. And yeah. I know you guys have, you know, folks like Ben Stone from the FBI here this yeah. week. And it was almost weird how nice the FBI beca became because, you know, out of cyber, we always looked at them as like, you know, why are the feds here? But they've yeah. really taken on this role now of 
wanting to understand and help companies. Have you seen yeah. that trend in, in, in law enforcement yourself? Without a doubt, and I would attribute it um, less to a change in character on law enforcement and more in terms of maturity uh, in our community. And I'll give you a kind of a funny example, right? So I, I'm a dad, I've got four kids. And when I was in my 20s and I was single, you know, if I saw a police officer, I would panic, right? I would check my speedometer, yeah. slow down, hit the brakes regardless. You know, now when I see police officers, I smile yeah. and I, I wave at them, you know, if, you know, I'll grab coffee with them because I tell them all the time, I said, I said now that I'm a dad and I've got something of real mm -hmm. value, I love law enforcement. I love that you're around. I love that you're visible. Yeah. You know, I, I understand it so much better. And I think, the, I think the cyber community is caught up to the value of law enforcement. You know, we're not afraid of them anymore. We realize that they're our friends. We realize that we can work better together. You know, we realize that we have to, there's some, there's some, there are issues that we have to work through, but it's not, it's not an us versus them. It's like, okay, within boundaries that we have to keep, how can we work together and how can we solve the problem? Yeah, and I think people underestimate the ability of, you know, law enforcement, if they, they have to get information, it's, they have more direct channels than uh, folks on the civil side. And so understanding what you can and can't do becomes really critical. Not looking at them as, you know, again, us versus them, but where do they fit in the overall piece? So, you know, as you, you know, kind of step back and look at how people should do some of their, you know, maybe not necessarily a full tabletop, but let's go like, who, who would you have at the seat of that? Like, where are some of the things, or some of the people and elements that you actually really need at the table when you're saying, all right, what's my Rolodex gonna look like in an incident? Yep. That's a great question. And uh, so when we would do tabletops in the past, we would focus on the technical part of things, the process and the thing. And I was, I, I did a tabletop in a former role, and I remember I'm, I'm, on this tabletop and more of an advisor and as a silent observer. And, and I realized that nobody on this tabletop, as high ranking as they were, really understood what was gonna happen when there was an incident. You know? And so I just kind of chimed in. I said, hey, look, I, no disrespect to anybody here, but you're missing the one person that needs to be on this call, which is the risk manager. Because um, th this is actually about money. And I know you're worried about the technical components, but at some point this is gonna turn into, you know, money and it's also going to turn into possibly a crime thing so you need to have the risk manager and you need to have our general counsel because they're going to be the ones that are going to be making decisions about contacting law enforcement and the risk manager is going to make decisions about who we're going to work with in this this situation and and so I think I, I don't know if I answered your question or answered a different one, but that's oh, yeah. I think what's shifting now is that who who you know is really important because it it's gonna it's gonna help solve problems. Yeah, uh, Debbie Blythe, who's the CISO in the state of Colorado, I've had her on the podcast before. I saw her at a conference last week, and she was talking about the ransomware attack that they had at CDOT. And the big takeaway that you know everybody in the audience had was, as she said, was she had all the relationships built to who to call well in advance. She needed to call the National Guard, yeah. law enforcement. FBI. I mean, she had everybody ready to come and help her because there was almost a you know business networking aspect that she had done for so long to getting to know the right people and people were so willing to help her out. And I yeah. think that's the part of incident response planning that I'm hoping seeing more people mature is taking it out of the technical and realizing it's, it is a team sport yeah. and they had to get more people. And one of the things is certainly, you know, 
there's a lot of breach counsel here, but you know, what's the role of the breach coach? And that's yep. a, lot of, a lot of issues that sometimes I have with organizations that call me first. I'm always like, I'm flattered that you called me first. Yeah. When a, but have you called your insurance carrier? Yep. Have you called breach counsel? How are you going to pay for this? Is there risk management? And they're like, oh, we just thought we had a business email compromise. Right. So I guess talk about some of the other roles that you see, you know, particularly with the audience that you have here of what are some of those other uh, people on the playing field that, sure. that you think are really important? Okay. Yeah, I think one thing that is important is, you know, incident responses has changed. Okay, and we have the ability to communicate so much quicker than we used to in the past. So I think a big part of it is having tools. You know, I just want to I just want to put that out there is is having modern tools to handle incident response. And what I mean by tools, I mean like instead of having a paper plan that is distributed to eight key people, having a centralized place where in a in a crisis situation everybody can go. You know, a good way to communicate with people, right? And things like Zoom is great technology, and there's tools out there in, in managing plans. But, but a big part of the kind of like the who, what, you know, when, where, how aspects of IR, incident response, is you have to have outside counsel. I mean, I just, it's not a good thing if your in-house attorney or your general counsel is an expert in breach response. That means you're, as an organization, you're handling way too many breaches. So, and most companies don't. So an outside counsel and a breach coach is, really critical because of two things. One, they have expertise, but, and you and I were just talking about the second reason, is they have all the relationships with the, with the law enforcement folks, with the attorney generals, you know, with the U.S. attorneys. And so that goes a really, that goes a, a really long way in terms of a properly handled incident. Um, and so I think that's a big part. You have to have, you have to have a really good forensic firm, you know, and if you don't have a good forensic firm, your insurance, believe me, your insurance policy will have taken time to determine who that is. And so, so making sure that you have that cyber insurance policy is, is critical because that's going to give you access to a lot of people. And I think nowadays you need to have a PR firm. Yeah. You have to have a PR firm because we've seen some amazing dialogue between CEOs and the press. You know, and I, this isn't a press thing. This is just you need to not open your mouth right now and just say, we need more information, you know? Yeah, the fear is like, you know, it, 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 not that it would ever happen, yeah. but it always fears, gosh, if, uh, if Tesla had it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. what would they tweet? But that's the thing, it's like you, right. you really have to uh, control those lines of communications, particularly early on in an incident because not every not every incident's a breach, yeah. and you want to be able to articulate that, and a lot of times people will hone in on this and say, oh my gosh, it's, you know, this has been all these things happen, it's like, whoa, no, that's not what happened. Like, here's reality versus, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the what's in the press. Yeah. Um, and certainly some of the things we've seen, too, is, um, you know, just, you know, the you know, ransomware events. I mean, they yeah. continue to, they're not going away. Yeah. Um, and one of the issues, you know, I see a lot of people on the technology side, no, you, you shouldn't pay your only funding. And it's like, yeah, I get it. But sometimes yeah. that's not... Um, that black and white. So how right. do you, how do you, I'm sure this has come up in, in your discussions quite yeah. a bit is how do you deal with the ransomware, um, you know, type, um, events? Yeah. Well, there's no secret sauce on what you should do every time. And, um, I think part of it is how serious is in the incident, you know, how, how strong is the recovery? 
I mean, if an organization has like a really great backup plan and they can get back up and running and it's not a big deal, that's one thing. But if they're not, um, I think one interesting thing to note is that there's a lot of uh, like Bitcoin brokers now that are out there that in a, in a ransomware situation, um, the access to funds is, is becoming an much easier so a lot of forensic firms will do that and, and things like that so um, so that's there but with ransomware I think a big part of it is you should assume if one firm is being hit with ransomware there's at least a hundred more and I think it was the the borough of Matsu in Alaska that went, basically they got hit by an attack and all that was left was a file with a number 102 which said you're our 102nd victim you know what I mean and then uh, like you know, 103 happened like two weeks later. So I think with ransomware, a big part of it is getting to to people that know whether it's law enforcement or or your carrier or somewhere where it's like okay, because they're probably not the only victim, and there's only one there's only one first case before it, it goes viral. So somebody knows about that ransomware. You know. Well, it's funny. One of the questions people would ask me, um, you know, when I was doing more of the ransomware incident responsible, how many people don't pay? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I only get called when they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and that comes down to one of the things I said. Well, how do you prevent it? It's, it's not only having good backups but testing them. And it's like, yeah. oh gosh, this is the same thing we've been saying in IT yeah. for the past 30 years. Is it's one thing to have your backups, but you have to go through the testing, and it almost yep. calls to the fact that you need more of that now. And it's yeah. like the good, the basics. I mean, you've been a tech about It's like yeah. the basics are there for a reason. It's not that they're easy. Yeah. They're a foundation. Yeah. And I won't name names, but I, I, I've been following ransomware pretty, pretty closely. And I've found a number of cases where I was pretty certain that the entity had the ability to handle it, but the executive team was afraid, you know, and, and that's a, that's a legitimate challenge. If you're, if you're an executive, you're a CEO of a hospital or a large firm and, and there's that question you're asking is, okay, my IT people are telling me we're good, yeah, but what if we're not, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's where, when you talk about testing, I think independent testing and third-party testing is really critical because it helps the CEO and the CFO and the other C-level executives be like, wait a minute, we had an outside party come in. They're experts in this field. Mm -hmm. They reviewed our, they did a tabletop with us. We did a ransomware test exercise. You know, we did a full-blown test with an outside party. I feel a little bit better about this than, you know, than listening to somebody that's within my organization alone, you know, and so. Yeah, it's something it's really kind of getting that out, outside opinion because yeah. you get confirmation bias and yeah. it's, it's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Uh, one of the other challenges I've seen too is like how, how to get through this much data. I mean. It was one thing when it was, you know, small data populations that we were going, and small with relative terms. I mean, we're not small back then, but compared to some of the larger breaches now. But, you know, what are some of the ways that you're seeing people try to address this problem? Of, okay, I know I've, I've been hit. I've had this compromise. How are they getting to that point as there's increased regulatory push to say you need to notify with the next number of days? That's a, those are tight deadlines. How, how are organizations overcoming that? Uh, candidly, Doug, they're not. No. It's, it's one of the biggest problems we have, which is that, you know, one of the key principles, I'm about to get on a high horse, so yeah, one of the key it. principles about like, data security is know, what, know your data, mm -hmm. you know, and the number of people that have no clue 
on how much data they have is staggering. And so that's always the biggest challenge is there's so much data, there's so much data out here, and it's like, how do we keep up with it? And and it, it comes from so many different sources, and then there's just simply the boundary issue, which is that a lot of companies still don't have really tight controls. So they have data that's on devices that shouldn't have it and things like that. But I think the biggest issue is that right now, there is no good answer because we haven't gotten there yet. And I think, but I believe technology is going to solve the problem. I think the technology is getting better. You've got DLP and people are getting more proactive. And so I think that's, that's the key. I would love for every company to have a really strong DLP solution. Yeah. And well, I, I think you've probably seen it as over the years as those used to be kind of arduous things to put in. And we saw it, you know, if you remember, you know, we pushed two factor for so many years, but it yeah. was hard. We had to do RSA yeah. tokens and there were, now yeah. it's all on the phone, but DLP is getting built in now yeah. to things like the Microsoft Azure stack. So there's almost no excuse not to have it at yeah. certain points. So, I mean, and that's the one thing I've always tried to, I think, make myself better as a security person say, okay, well, how do we enable people? Right. You know, what do we put in their hands? Because the, the one thing that I think that we need to message is uh, cybersecurity should not be an obstacle to doing right. business. So what are some of those other technologies that can also be kind of you know, a win-win in the sense that it becomes an enabler, helps the company, and doesn't become disruptive to yeah. getting day-to-day -day operations done? And sometimes it's a really simple solution. One of the best uses of technology I've ever seen is, and again, I go, always go back to healthcare, is somebody wrote an app that gave the doctor the ability to show the patient visually what the procedure was. Mm -hmm. And in the past, you would sit with the physician, the surgeon would come in, and um, and I love surgeons, I come from, a, I have a family of surgeons. and So they would come in and they wouldn't have a tool, so they would describe the process and they would use all kinds of acronyms, they would talk about body parts that you know, most of us don't know about. And then this tool comes out, it's simple technology, it says, okay, we're gonna work on your esophagus, and it just shows yeah. how it's gonna happen. Everybody's happy. You know, the doctor's happy because it's a four minute conversation instead of like a painful <laughs> 20 minute conversation. Right. Everybody in the room feels good about it, and it was just technology. And I, I, feel, like, I feel like we're on the brink of some really awesome modeling tools and like threat intelligence type tools and, and even DLP solutions that are gonna really be awesome. Very cool. Well, Vinny, I really appreciate you taking the time today. You know, where outside of the Net Diligence Conference can people find you? Are you online or is there places? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, Vinny Secor, you can always you can always find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, I do speak at events, you yeah. know, other than Net Diligence, but, you know, I'm, I'm around. And when is he at? Is the new report out to tomorrow is it the insurance industry cybercrime task force report was released yesterday yesterday okay um, we're doing some spotlight reports with our 2020 uh, you know 2019 2020 claim study yeah. the report comes out at uh, in October at our Santa Monica event but you're gonna see some spotlight reports coming out this week Leading and up. throughout the summer very cool I'll be sure to link that and as those things come out I'll, I'll tweet them as well great well thanks for having uh, thanks for coming on the show today all right thank you thanks Doug Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.